This is Voicemail, the Universal Postal Union's podcast covering the wonderful world of mail. I'm your host, Ian Kerr. In this episode, I'm talking with Gareth Phillips, Climate and Environment Finance Manager at the African Development Bank Group. And we're going to talk about a wide range of subjects, including climate mitigation, resilience, the gender climate nexus, and how the post fits in with all this. So, coming up in just a moment, Gareth Phillips from the African Development Bank Group. Joining me on the line is Gareth Phillips. Gareth is Climate and Environment Finance Manager at the African Development Bank Group. Gareth, welcome to UPU Voicemail Podcast. The question that we ask all our guests is to share what your first memory of the post is. Great. Well, thanks very much uh, for inviting me to join you. So my first memory of the post is uh, when I used to go and stay with my grandmother in Wales. And uh, every morning the postman would stick his head through the door and shout, and she would shout back uh, whether he had letters to deliver or not. And of course, uh, as I later realized, uh, you know, he was providing a very important service in terms of uh, supporting my grandmother, who was old and frail, uh, and checking that she was all right. And actually, that story has uh, particular resonance because uh, she lived in a town called Fairbourne uh, in, in Cardigan Bay in Wales. And that area has now been given up to sea level rise. So actually, the house that we used to go and visit in is now um, frequently submerged by the sea. So uh, it's particularly poignant given the topic of today's discussion. Well, let's let's delve into a bit about what the African Development Bank Group does. So you've been there for a number of years now. Can you tell us a bit about what the bank's goals are and what its main work streams are? So the bank's primary goal is to um, bring socioeconomic development to the African continent and to fight poverty. But increasingly, we've seen a greater focus on climate change and providing finance uh, or, or financing projects that address the challenge of climate change. Uh, and so we currently have a goal that uh, uh, 40% of all of our investments need to be classed as climate finance. And indeed, following on from the COP and recent meetings with the IMF and so on, there's increased pressure on MDBs like the African Development Bank to do more work in the climate change space because governments are realizing that if we don't deal with climate change, then hard-won development goals will start to be lost. All those improvements, the infrastructure uh, and so on that have been put in place can literally get washed away if we don't take care of that. So we're working more and more now uh, to address things like renewable energy, climate resilient agriculture uh, and climate resilient infrastructure. Well, then tell us a bit about what the current state of finance is for climate mitigation and resilience in Africa. And can you also share perhaps if there's something special about the region that's made you choose it as the major focus of your own work? The current state of finance in uh, in Africa, I mean, uh, Africa benefits very little in global terms from uh, climate finance. Uh, in the region of three and a half to four percent of total global finance comes to Africa. And uh, we feel that uh, that's a, you know, a very small amount, given that Africa is home to nine of the 10 most vulnerable countries to climate change. Countries like DRC and Sierra Leone uh, and uh, Mali are particularly uh, exposed and, and, and vulnerable to, uh, to change. Um, of that um, three, three and a half percent, it, it amounts to about $20 billion dollars. 
The majority of that goes into mitigation activities, which is that's about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which is good. But Africa's main need is to adapt to climate change. We have uh, in excess of 600 million farmers who rely on rain-fed agriculture. And therefore, as the climate change and rainfall becomes less reliable and more variable, then their incomes are at risk. We have 900 million people who don't have access to clean cooking technologies. And actually, that number is growing because the population growth in Africa is faster than the rollout of clean cooking technologies. And, and, and you may ask, well, what's that got to do with climate change? But actually, uh, clean cooking has a number of impacts. It uses up a huge amount. Or, or if you can deploy clean cooking technologies, it frees up a huge amount of women and girls' time and enables them to be more productive. It helps the girls to go to school. The women can do more work in the fields and makes them more resilient to climate change, as well as, of course, uh, helping to avoid uh, the degradation of remaining um, forests and biomass uh, in harvesting of fuel wood. So um, and as to why we work in the region, I mean, I came to Africa um, seven, seven and a half years ago to work for the African Development Bank because uh, they were boosting their climate change program. And that's the field that I've been working in uh, for, for most of my career. But, uh, you know, when you look at the uh, really sort of the, the, the whole kind of moral justice and the moral position, Africa is the country that is most in need of, a continent that is most in need of support for climate change. And I'm, uh, there's a tremendous amount of work to do here. So then what can the postal sector do? I mean, the postal sector reaches out into every country around the world and across Africa. So what could it do? What's its, its role right now that could play or the role that the postal sector could play in climate mitigation and or even adaptation, I suppose? Globally, we're looking for uh, all, all institutions and organizations need to become Paris aligned. That's the phrase that we use to say that, uh, you know, you adopt policies that will help you meet the objectives of the Paris Agreement, which is to become ultimately net zero uh, and to ensure that all your activities contribute to a low carbon and climate resilient future. So as an institution like the African Development Bank, uh, we would invite you know, the Postal Service to adopt uh, a Paris alignment policy. And that means that you need to, first of all, look at your own internal activities which would do things like transport, um, foot, your, your, your office footprint, the energy you use, uh, becoming more energy efficient and ultimately moving to renewable energy. Uh, and of course, in Africa, there's a huge potential uh, for, you know, for example, rooftop solar panels uh, and so on that can provide the energy that, that buildings and households need. Um, shifting to electric vehicles is more demanding. Obviously, there isn't the infrastructure present in Africa yet, uh, but it will come. And in the meantime, you know, we can look at more efficient fuel uh, vehicles uh, and, and better use of vehicles and so on. Um, and, uh, and then you can, you, know, you can reach out to your staff or your employees uh, to sensitize them and so on. But then, you know, in terms of the services that you provide, uh, I think this is also quite interesting. I mean, it depends, uh, you know, obviously reducing packaging, uh, increasing recycling, but reducing the weight for airmail and things like that is, uh, is already important. But, but maybe there's not too much scope around that. Uh, and then, you know, I think the, the, the role, I think there is a role for the Postal Service, and it goes back to my opening uh, statement about sort of the provision of, uh, of social support and a social safety net. I think there is potentially a role for, uh, for the Post uh, to help raise awareness and act uh, as an entity that uh, builds awareness 
uh, in rural populations about the need to transition to low carbon and climate resilient futures and the technologies that are available, uh, particularly renewable energy. Uh, I think there's a fairly high level of awareness about you know, roof-mounted solar panels and batteries and so on, but it always helps if there's more people talking about that. And then about climate resilient activities, insurance for agricultural uh, producers, um, uh, information systems on weather, and, uh, and, you know, things like that. The, I, I don't know, but I, I sometimes think these are areas where the post could get more involved. Indeed, some of the technologies you've mentioned along the way there, things like uh, solar panels on sorting centres, things like electric-powered vehicles, are certainly being looked at in many parts of the world, not universally, let's say. But from where you're sitting, what are some of the, the most promising green technologies that are out there that could simultaneously increase climate mitigation, the resilience and, and energy security, which is something we don't talk enough about, across the regions. Is there any of them that could be perhaps particularly relevant or suitable for the post? The biggest renewable energy technology and I think the potential for Africa is what we call green hydrogen, which is hydrogen that's generated from renewable energy. Uh, so it's effectively a, a net zero or a zero carbon emission fuel, uh, but it's also a feedstock into hard to abate industrial sectors. Um, so you can actually use it to replace natural gas in the manufacture of fertilizer, ammonia, uh, chemical feedstocks, as well as for steel, cement and glass. But I, I don't imagine that the post is going to get involved in, uh, uh, in green hydrogen production. But nonetheless, um, you know, the, the rooftop solar or, or indeed ground mounted solar, uh, you know, all of this kind of technology helps improve energy access and reduces the burden on existing grids and will make it easier for utility companies to plan for and implement and invest in um, particularly sort of larger scale renewable energy technologies uh, such as wind farms and uh, geothermal and in some instances uh, hydropower or, or improving the quality of hydropower and maybe pump storage as a way of, of storing energy. And all of those technologies can contribute towards uh, freeing up energy to go into the production of green hydrogen. So if everybody is able to do a little bit to support investment into renewable energy uh, through, for example, rooftop solar, uh, through uh, clean cooking technologies, uh, through electric vehicles and so on, then uh, they can all help contribute to the, uh, the bigger picture. In the African region then, what do you consider to be more important? You know, is it emissions reduction or is it you know, building resilience to climate impacts? I think in the African region, in the majority of African countries, it's building resilience to the impacts of climate change. I mentioned the number of people uh, that are at risk. Uh, the, um, and, you know, we see that in, in the worst examples. Uh, there are already uh, socioeconomic systems that are collapsing. Some agricultural systems are proving not to be sufficiently resilient. We see problems um, in, uh, in the Sahel uh, with particularly uh, pastoralists, uh, you know, when they're, they're herding cattle and they're arriving uh, at places where they expect there to be grass and there isn't any grass uh, and they're eating the crops from the agronomists and so on. I mean, these are, uh, these are problems that we're already facing and that results in the collapse of livelihoods, uh, lack of activities for, particularly for youth, uh, radicalization, marginalization and ultimately uh, immigration, oh, sorry, migration. Um, so, you know, th that's kind of the tip of the iceberg and, and, and the, the worst case scenario. But all over Africa, you see people are increasingly being pushed back towards poverty. 
uh, and uh, you know people work hard to climb out of poverty, uh, and then along comes a climate disaster. Uh, of course, other disasters do the same thing, but climate disasters are happening more and more frequently now. So a flood or a drought uh, typically then you know forces them to consume what savings they have, and they're pushed back into poverty again. Uh, because they haven't been able to to build up enough resources to become resilient, or that you know they don't have employment, uh, they don't have insurance, and so on. So these are the, the sorts of um, adaptation and resilience issues. Of course, mitigation is important, and if we don't get on top of mitigation, uh, then um, you know the problem will get worse. But Africa has a relatively small percentage. Um, historically, three to four percent of total emissions have come from Africa. Uh, and so even if African countries manage to reduce their emissions, it has a very small impact on the overall um, global emissions. Now, that's not to say that things aren't happening in South Africa. There's a big program called the Just Energy Transition Plan, uh, which is helping and, and planning to shut down all the coal-fired power plants in Africa uh, over the next, um, I think, uh, one to two decades. Uh, and um, that will have a significant reduction on greenhouse gas emissions for the African continent. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, there's a lot of work going on in Nigeria, Egypt, Morocco, and so on. These are some of the, and Senegal, these are some of the sort of the larger emitters. Uh, um, and, uh, and we'll be continuing to invest in renewable energy uh, to stop the greenhouse gas emissions growing in Africa. One area uh, of concern for greenhouse gas emissions is methane. Uh, methane is a particularly potent greenhouse gas. It has a very rapid impact uh, on the climate, and, if, and it doesn't have a very long life. So if you can stop emitting methane, then we could shave as much as uh, 0.2 degrees off the global warming by 2050 if, if we can meet this 2030 target. But in Africa, uh, one, of the, um, one of the challenges is that as we urbanize, there will be more collection of uh, solid and liquid waste. And if these are not treated correctly, they are a major source of methane. So if you have unman unmanaged landfills, uh, as all that organic matter decomposes, it releases methane to the atmosphere. And there aren't very many managed landfills or sanitary landfills in Africa. They're expensive to build. Uh, and the likelihood is that a lot of waste will be just dumped. And the same with liquid waste. At the moment, most of it goes into open water where it decomposes aerobically. But if you start to collect it and process it, you produce methane. So these are technologies that we have to build in as we move forward and make sure that we don't make emissions worse worse in, uh, in Africa uh, as we develop. Now, in your role at the African Development Bank, you also manage the Africa Climate Change Fund. So what kind of projects are you looking for and what are, the, let's say, the key features of a successful application? So the Africa Climate Change Fund is a multi-donor trust fund uh, with about $33 million uh, in it uh, so far. And it offers grants, small grants, up, typically up to a million dollars, to civil society organizations, um, governments, and also to uh, bank departments. Uh, so in other words, we can apply for those funds as well from within the bank. And we've recently revised it to also be able to offer grants to the private sector for non-profit making activities. And that's important because we expect the private sector to solve many of our problems. So uh, I was keen that, that we should be able to support the private sector in these activities. And uh, we also, um, now that the, the focus of the Africa Climate Change Fund is on the Glasgow Climate Pact. Now, that was also significant because the Glasgow Climate Pact pulls in the Convention on Biodiversity and Desertification. It talks about uh, reducing deforestation. It mentions the importance of the global media 
methane pledge and reducing emissions, as well as increasing investments into adaptation and mitigation. So basically, all things climate change uh, can be supported through the Africa Climate Change Fund. It runs through uh, what we call calls for proposals, which are released periodically. Uh, and uh, at, when we release a call for proposal, then anybody that's eligible is, is, uh, is allowed to apply. Uh, the problem is we tend to get a lot of applications. Um, even uh, the last one that we ran, even with a fairly tight front end to exclude people who are ineligible, we had over 400 uh, applications and uh, we only had, I think, seven or eight million dollars uh, to support it, which means that, you know, we can do 10 to 15 projects out of uh, out of that total amount. We're left with a pipeline of good projects and we use that to try to raise more funding. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, there's, there's always a need for more support. And the kinds of projects that we've done uh, through that, that latest one, it was supporting gender. Uh, so, for example, we were supporting uh, training and awareness raising amongst gender groups to participate in the climate change negotiation. Uh, we were supporting some women-led agricultural uh, communities or cooperatives uh, to help them gain access to training and technology. Uh, and um, the next call for proposal that we have will focus on methane because we received some money uh, from the U.S. State Department uh, to focus on methane. So we'll be looking for uh, proposals, pre-feasibility studies, training awareness raising, and possibly some actual projects on the ground to reduce methane emissions in Africa. Now, in Western Europe, we've seen a couple of postal operators get involved in green bonds. So looking then in the African context, how can posts in Africa or even beyond secure climate finance and attract investment to improve the resilience and sustainability of their own infrastructure? And where could this funding even come from? So there are funds that would provide uh, resources for those, uh, those kinds of activities. Uh, the most likely would be the Green Climate Fund. Uh, the GCF, which is the, that is the sort of formal financing instrument under the Framework Convention for Climate Change. It is headquartered in Songdo in Korea. Uh, it is uh, about to embark on its second replenishment. You access those funds through accredited entities. The African Development Bank is what we call an international accredited entity. So we can uh, apply for funds uh, to support projects uh, across the continent, and, and we can apply for large amounts of money at high risk. But you also have what are called direct access entities, which are country-level uh, entities that are accredited to access the funds. And um, for, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, for, the, for the post in a specific country, going through the direct access entity would be the most appropriate route. And you would need to come up with uh, a project proposal that demonstrates how you're going to reduce your emissions and also they're particularly interested in adaptation. So how you can ensure that um, you know, your activities and, and the, the clients that you serve become more resilient to climate change. You can put that together into a proposal and you can seek uh, grants and concessional loans from the Green Climate Fund. So that would be one way that, uh, that the Post could, uh, could access funds. If you want to do a multi-country program, then you would need to come through an institution like the African Development Bank. Uh, but I, I do need to warn you at the outset, it's a long and complicated process uh, to secure funds from the Green Climate Fund. Um, there may be other bilateral sources that are quite specific. Uh, the uh, German government, for example, runs the uh, uh, International Climate Initiative, ICI, I-K-I, uh, and uh, they, uh, they give funds for these kinds of activities. Um, and I'm not sure when their next call for proposals is. Um, so there are places that you can look to get funds uh, to support you in these kinds of activities. 
Gareth, one of the important areas of your work is the the gender climate nexus. This this um, this interconnection was or is, I should say, an important topic for the UPU. In fact, in in March this year, in 2022, the UPU celebrated International Women's Day under the theme Sustainable Means Equal, which was highlighting the need for a greater gender balance in the industry to advance on um, on its climate goals. So what's your take on this? How do you see the interdependence of these two goals across sectors? Uh, you know, we say when women succeed, we all succeed uh, because uh, we know that women are, uh, you know, they make up 50 percent of the workforce. They are extremely reliable. They have better uh, records at repaying loans when they make profit uh, and money. They reinvest it in their household and in the community. Uh, and um, we lose a huge amount of, uh, of women's resources through the fact that they're unable to, to access credit. Uh, they don't own land, uh, you know, they, they have uh, um, child caring, uh, child bearing and house making responsibilities because of their gender uh, and, and so on. So, um, you know, we've, we very much uh, realize that gender is an issue that needs to be addressed and, and we mainstream it throughout all of our projects now in the bank uh, to promote the role of women. In the climate environment, it's even more significant because um, as, because so many women work in uh, the agricultural sector, for example, when crops suffer, when rains fail, they, they don't get any income. Uh, when, um, uh, when there's a drought, they're the ones who have to go and collect the water and spend uh, more time uh, walking further to do those kinds of things. Uh, and in the, in, in the event of emergencies, It's often women who suffer the most. So women have a very hard time uh, from uh, climate change. And uh, in my previous answer, I mentioned the Africa Climate Change Fund. The last call for proposals that we had was specifically to boost the role of women in climate change. Uh, and uh, it's very important that, uh, you know, that we do more in that area. So it's great that uh, the Post has been recognizing this and looking for opportunities to uh, give a greater gender balance within the industry. Uh, and uh, we really think it's important that as we move forward with climate change, we particularly recognize the role that women and girls can bring to, uh, to tackling the, the problem. Now, COP27 was recently held. What were your hopes and expectations going into COP27 and, and have they been met? So, I mean, there's uh, two levels. Obviously, um, we attend, as uh, the African Development Bank, we attend the COP primarily as a sort of a fundraising activity to meet with our partners, to network, uh, to explain the work that we're doing. It's a great uh, you know, event to, to meet and network. And um, I know a lot of people feel that it, it's, a, it's a bit more of a talking shop. Uh, but for many of the sort of the, 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 the non-negotiators that I say who attend, it is the best place to go on an annual basis to share ideas, uh, to raise funds, to talk about uh, the problems that we're facing and to address those. So, um, you know, we had a very full program. Uh, we held a number of what we call side events. These are sort of one or one and a half hour events where you present slides, talk about what you're doing, answer questions uh, and so on. And then you spend a lot of time walking around the corridors, meeting people, talking about things and, uh, and making plans. So, so we had a very successful time. Um, uh, we raised the profile of a number of our funds. For example, the Africa Climate Change Fund, we had a uh, a couple of presentations uh, about that to our investors and, sh- and shareholders and stakeholders uh, who've uh, put money into those projects. Uh, and um, we also met with a number of uh, high-level 
officials to kind of push Africa's need for finance. We met with donors from developed countries to explain, uh, you know, how we uh, how we're using their money and, and how and why we need more. And that's very important because, you know, they they have to make difficult decisions about where to allocate funds. Uh, and it's a really good opportunity for us to advocate for support for Africa. On the bigger picture, of course, in the negotiations, then, you know, these things move uh, much more slowly. And I, I'm sure some of your listeners may have heard of, you know, that the, the main outcome, I think, was on the creation of um, or at least progress on loss and damage. That's an important development because we've been looking for progress on loss and damage for 20 years. It's been a, a thorn in the side of the negotiations for a long time. So good to see progress on that. But at the same time, we need to be realistic because it will take several years to create a fund. We then have to get money into it. We have to work out how to use it, uh, who's going to be accredited to, to access it and what it's going to be used for and so on. So there's many more years of work ahead of us before we may actually see money money coming for um, for uh, for loss and damage uh, but it's still um, of course we managed to to hold on to the 1.5 degree target um, uh, which was good there was a little bit of weakening around the language on on, on the use of fossil fuels I think was disappointing uh, and um, particularly we saw some further progress on what we call article 6 which deals with how the private sector uh, can engage in uh, both mitigation and adaptation activities. And the adaptation side of that is an area that we are particularly focused on. So I was pleased with the, the, with the progress that we made there. Uh, well, lastly then, Gareth, just sort of taking a, a, bro- a bigger picture view, in your opinion, what are the most realistic and attainable climate goals given, given these gaps in global socioeconomic development? I think in Africa, the, you know, the major challenge that we have is access to energy. Um, energy changes people's lives, uh, li- uh, livelihoods, their lives, the way they live, their quality of life. If you put electricity into a house, you, know, you can have a refrigerator, lighting, a television, uh, you know, charge your phone for, mo- for, for internet access and so on. So you, you improve their quality of life, but you also give people uh, energy for productive use. So that means that uh, you can use that energy to process agricultural produce, for example, and you can add value to it. You can store them for longer, which brings food security uh, and so on. So really giving people access to energy is probably the single biggest thing that you can do to improve their quality of life and make them more climate resilient. Uh, not far behind that is clean cooking technology um, because uh, every year, and I, I don't know the number, but thousands and thousands of women and girls die from inhaling uh, fumes, uh, smoke from their fire because they're working over a smoky fire and cooking in that. They suffer from asthma, chest infections, uh, which make them more prone to, uh, uh, to other forms of respiratory disease. Uh, they waste so much time collecting firewood and so on. When, if you can replace that, even with a gas stove, and, and, and some people would argue not to use gas stoves because gas, of course, is a, is a greenhouse gas and a fossil fuel. Uh, but uh, even changing that with, um, with, with gas stoves or with bioethanol uh, and so on to burn in the stove, it has a huge impact upon the quality of life for women and girls, uh, which uh, makes them much more resilient and contributes to, uh, to society. So, so these are the two of the big goals, I think, for Africa, energy access and clean cooking. Gareth, this is a hugely important topic, not just for Africa, but for the entire world. And it's, you know, it's on the one hand encouraging to hear that people are taking it seriously, but it's also really sets out for us the amount of work that's yet to be done, not just in Africa, but around the world to mitigate against climate change or even try to avoid 
future global warming and other things like that. Gareth Phillips, Climate and Environment Finance Manager at the African Development Bank Group. Thank you very much for joining us on the UPU Voicemail Podcast today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Voicemail, the official podcast of the Universal Postal Union. Subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform and you'll get each episode downloaded to the device of your choosing as it's released. My thanks to the team at the UPU for their help putting together this episode. I'm your host, Ian Kerr, and I look forward to your company next time on Voicemail, the podcast of the UPU. Voicemail.